So you have met the love of your life and you think you're ready to take it to the next step. But what are some things that you need to know about marriage? How can you have a successful marriage? How many marriages are successful? And is really any of that all that important? This is what we're talking about this week when we talk about marriage. So you found the perfect person and you think you're ready to take it to the next step. Let's talk about marriage. Marriage has changed a great deal largely because of society and the shifting importance that society has with marriage. Um, Traditionally, marriage was entered into because of um, economic interdependence, common residence, sexual fidelity, shared responsibility, all of those particular reasons. And here in the United States, we're one of the only uh, remaining cultures that engages in marriage by choice or engages in marriage um, after you know a courtship time period versus some other cultures where they still engage in arranged marriages. Um, and largely marriage by choice is much more a product of an individualistic society versus a collective society. Um, But marriage nonetheless has changed, and some of the reasons that the traditional model of marriage has changed is because of increased acceptance of singlehood. It is incredibly acceptable now, or it's much more acceptable now than it was, uh, say, even 20, 30 years ago, for individuals to remain single throughout adulthood. Um, these, matter of fact, the average age for a first marriage is increasing, and the average age for women is 26.1 years of age, and the average age for men to enter into their first marriage is 28.2. So there's been this gradual shift in um, the way that we perceive singlehood in adulthood. The second one is increased acceptance of cohabitation. Cohabitation is obviously living together with a um, uh, sexually intimate relationship without being married or without entering into the bonds of marriage. Now, for the vast majority of us, and we'll mention this later as we start talking about divorce, we think that it's a great idea to enter into cohabitation prior to getting married. It's like test driving a car. You wouldn't buy a car without driving it. Let's make sure that we're compatible before we actually live together. The reality is, is that cohabitation actually results in higher incidence of divorce and um, more um, likely that people will rush into a marriage even though they acknowledge that they may not be compatible for each other. So although we think cohabitation is better for our marriage, it actually turns out that it's not. The next uh, reason that marriage has changed is the reduced premium on permanence. So prior to, and a lot of people still view marriage as a permanent commitment, but there's a number of people that see, um, especially with the increase in divorce rates and the decrease in social stigma uh, around divorce, they see it as much less of a permanent um, solution. And then there's also transition in gender roles. And we'll talk about this, but gender roles in the in the home have become much more flexible for men and women. And so that ch- shift in gender roles has also shifted the way that we view marriage. 
There's also an increased voluntary childlessness. Um, the number of individuals who are either married or unmarried who are opting not to have children or remain childless and focus more on careers and career opportunities has increased. And there again, then shifting um, not only the desire for independence, but also shifting the um, desire or lack of desire for a marriage. And then a decline in the traditional nuclear family. Um, there has been an increase um, in the tra uh, traditional nuclear family, meaning that there's been a decline. Um, there's been an increase in how we view the nuclear family. Um, and because of that, um, there's a greater um, prevalence of uh, single parent homes, step families, childless marriages, um, a high percentage of divorces, any number of things that have increased um, the way that we view marriage and decreased that decline or, de or um, de there's been a decline in the way that we perceive the traditional nuclear family. So there's been a lot of reasons that have um, really that we've seen a decline in marriage rates and see um, a decline in the way that we view marriage. Now, there's also, um, as we look at marriage and some of the reasons that we choose to marry, there's a lot of cultural influences on marriage. Um, of course, again, here in uh, modern Western cultures, we permit more of um, free choice in who we marry, um, and marriages are not arranged. Um, but there is estimates that in other cultures, um, that 80% of the world cultures practice arranged marriages still today. And so again, that occurs much more in collectivist societies than in um, the individualistic society that we live in. So let's look at some of the ways that we select a mate. And it should come as no surprise that selecting a mate is very similar to the way that we select our friendships as well. Again, um, pulling from that material that we talked about in Friendships and Love, some of the most successful marriages start out as friendships first. And so some of the things that factor in to selecting a mate are things like uh, monogamy versus uh, polygamy. And so monogamy is obviously the practice of having only one spouse at a time. Um, polygamy is the practice of having more than one spouse at a time. And polygamy is um, practiced worldwide and tends to be much more common in other societies. Um, but there, that's one of the um, factors that influences selecting a mate. There's also something called um, endogamy. Endogamy is the tendency for people to marry within their own social group. And so, again, pulling from that um, information that we talked about with friendships and love, we tend to flock with people that we know with our, within our own social group, within our own um, uh, influences. And a lot of this has to do with that's what we are comfortable with and it's what we have come become accustomed to. Um, again, very similar to this is um, homogeny. And homogeny is just that, the tendency for people to marry people with simo similar personal characteristics. So when you're looking for a mate, these similar personal characteristics are things like attitudes and values and maybe even marital history or physical attractiveness. 
we know that similarity will help to ensure or similarity is one of the factors in a longer lasting marriage. And so those are some of the things that we look for. There's also some predictors for our marital success. When we look at the uh, marital success, of course, there's no marriage that is foolproof. And this also factors in a lot of those things that we talked about in the chapter on friendship and love. Why our romantic relationships end are very similar to why our marriages end as well. We have to have those similarities. We have to be able to uh, resolve conflicts. But then in addition to all of those things, we also, some, some other factors that play into marital success are things like family background. Um, there are uh, a number of research studies that have looked at the divorce cycle and how if your parents divorced, it's much more likely that you will get divorced as well. Uh, So our family background plays a part in it. Age plays a part in it. The younger you are when you get married, the less likely your marriage is to succeed. Um, That's not to say that if you wait until you're 40, that you'll definitely have a very successful marriage. But one of the uh, reasons that they um, attribute to age is that when we marry young in our early 20s, our late teens, we're experiencing a transition at that time. And so we may be getting married either for the wrong reasons or when we are getting married at that young age, the person that we're marrying may not be the same person in four or five years as they're experiencing a transition as well. Think about all the changes that you went through when you were between ages 16 and 18 or 20, and are you the same person today that you were back then? Another predictor of marriage is the length of courtship. Uh, Longer courtships uh, allow for couples to really kind of get to know each other and engage in much more of that self-disclosure, which will benefit the marriage in the long term. Uh, another aspect is personality. There are some traits that ca- that show some modest correlations uh, with marital adjustment. And, you know, a lot of these were the traits that we were talking about that really factor into that interpersonal communication. So having a negative outlook, having a self-defeating personality, having a self-absorbed personality, those are all of those personality traits that oftentimes are predictors of an unsuccessful marriage or predictables of why, you know, even just relationships fail. Premarital communication factors in. Again, we're seeing this commonality of communication and self-disclosure. That plays in the quality of premarital communication is critical because it starts before you get married. It's not like all of a sudden one day you wake up after you've said your wedding vows and now you're going to disclose all this information to this other person. If you don't start before and you know, you don't start with self-disclosure and acceptance before, then it's never going to start after the marriage. And then last thing is stressful events and how we cope and how we deal with stressful events. That really impacts um, the spillover that can uh, erode a marriage. If, you know, you are not compatible in your dealing with stressful events, that can also um, kind of erode the marriage and the foundation that the marriage is built on. 
So knowing all of this information can really kind of help us to protect our marriages and protect ourselves against unsuccessful marriages. But there are some other things that we need to know. We need to know what are some things that are really going to be um, a adjustment in in marriage. And marriage is really a lot of work. And it takes a lot of work, not just um, to maintain the marriage, but it actually takes a lot of work in the beginning of the marriage too. Adjusting um, to marriage and to marital life can oftentimes be difficult. And there's a couple of key areas in which these adjustments occur. So things like role expectations. Once you get married, you should, and prior to getting married, you should probably talk about role expectations. What are some things that you are going to engage in in the home versus what are the things that your spouse is going to engage in in the home? What are the um, household duties and household chores? How are things going to be divided? All of those things which seem like, oh, not a big deal and we won't argue about them become a huge deal after you get married. And you must also keep in mind that these are things that you're going to have to reevaluate as time and stress and demands change because another area of adjustment is work and marriage or work and careers. Who is going to, are are both spouses going to um, maintain their careers? Um, How are we going to divide up the the work at home when we're both maintaining our careers? Um, How these things are going to play out? And then also children. Are you going to have children? What is the landscape going to look like when you have children? Are both parents going to continue to work when you have children? Is one parent going to stay home from work? And again, all of these things, you know, we lay out some of the best laid plans, but then life throws us some monkey wrenches and things happen that you weren't expecting. And so again, being able to deal with these stressors and being able to disclose and communicate with your spouse um, in regards to these stressors can be great insurance for your marriage. Another area that tends to bring up a lot of arguments and tends to be a very stressful point of contention when it comes to marriage are financial difficulties and finances in general. I would also add to that, um, you know, starting with when you get married, what are you going to do? Are you going to combine your resources? Are you going to maintain separate resources? Um, those are some things that you and your spouse would need to work out. And again, this is very individual because what works for you doesn't work for everybody else. And what works for everybody else may not work for you. Um, how are you going to deal with financial stresses? Things like uh, when somebody loses their job, when somebody decides to quit their job, when um, you know things start to cost more than what you were anticipating. All of those are the financial stressors that can also um, create tremendous roadblocks in a marriage. Inadequate communication, of course, as we've talked about throughout this course, having, um, you know, really key and being well aware of your interpersonal communication is beneficial, not just in marriages, but throughout life. Um, The strategies that you use to resolve conflict become critical in marital satisfaction and how we're able to deal with stress and how we're able to use these strategies to resolve that, those conflicts. And so inadequate communication um, is really Um, key. And we've kind of looked at, um, John Gottman has laid out four 
um, identified or has identified four communication patterns, which he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are high risk factors for divorce. And these things are contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And these, um, I would also argue, are not just, although they're key to marriages, but they're also um, really key to other types of relationships as well. So contempt, when we talk about contempt, contempt is insulting uh, one's feelings and making one spouse feel inferior or, again, insulting any individual and making one feel inferior. And now why these come out so tremendously in marriages is, again, that amount of self-disclosure. And we have put ourselves in a position of vulnerability. In addition to the fact that when you are married, you're frequently around this person a lot. You come home and that person is always there. You wake up in the morning and that person is there. You leave and that person is there. You come back and that person is there. Versus friendships that we can kind of escape and take a downtime from or step away from. So, you know, living with somebody who um, is always uh, engaging in contempt or insulting behaviors and making one feel inferior is really going to be an impediment to communication as well as really help to demise that relationship. The second one is criticism, and criticism involves that over-negative, you know, always being critical of the other person's behavior. As we mentioned before, this is also one of the quickest ways to demise any romantic relationship. Pointing out somebody's faults is never a good method of interpersonal communication. And so again, when you engage in conflict with either an intimate partner or even with a friendship, you want to make sure that when you engage in uh, conflict, you're discussing the behavior at that moment. What was the behavior that led up to it? Not what was the behavior two years ago. Even no matter how similar this behavior is, you want to bring up relevant situations because nobody wants all of their faults pointed out to them at one time. Defensiveness, it refers to um, responding to, defensiveness is when we respond to either contempt or criticism by refuting or denying the personal, the person's statements. Or even, and it may not be in the situation of contempt or criticism, but oftentimes some people become very defensive in every aspect of their daily life. And so even when you make comments that are not related to that person, the person may turn it around and say, I didn't do that and become very defensive. And again, that can become exhausting to live with. And it's also exhausting when you engage in conflict and somebody is constantly being defensive and wanting to share their side of the story rather than actually being able to work forward with the event or the conflict and progress the relationship. And then the last obstacle is stonewalling. Stonewalling is refusing to listen to a partner and refusing to accept the partner's complaints. Um, and stonewalling is received or so stonewalling can be done in a variety of different ways. Stonewalling can be just walking off and not even bothering to listen. Another method of stonewalling is when, um, you know, the person stands there and, um, just doesn't even respond. And that's another way of stonewalling, which is also, you know, a very um, negative 
um, manner in which to deal with uh, interpersonal communication. And then the last one that can also be um, troublesome, especially a troublesome pattern of communication, is belligerence. And belligerence is just a provocative, combative, um, somebody who's always challenging and always coming against you. Um, one of those, you know, like highly competitive individuals. That's also another, again, going back to our interpersonal communication, another method that will really shut down communication in a marriage and help to demise the relationship. So what happens when we can't work it out? Well, Sometimes divorce is inevitable, and actually, um, divorce is just that is the um, legal um, dis, uh, resolution of a marriage or dissolving of a marriage. And what we found is that divorce rates have actually been um, increasing. They've kind of reached their peak in most cases, and um, they estimate that future divorce risk is right around fifty percent. And divorce rates currently in the United States are somewhere between about 40 and 45%. Um, however, that's for first more marriages. What we find is that there's kind of an exponential growth with second and third marriages. So by the time you're entering into your second marriage, the divorce rate reaches somewhere between about 60 and 70%. And by the time you make it to your third marriage, the divorce rate is nearly 75%. So uh, we see that there's kind of this exponential growth with uh, divorce rates. One of the other things that we found, and this is where the seven-year itch, which has now come down to a five-year itch, factors in, is back when we were talking about, you know, why do relationships end and why do romantic relationships end? Well, marriages experience a similar pattern in which they experience a honeymoon period, and the honeymoon period typically lasts for about six months. From the time you're married until the first six months is a honeymoon period. And then after that, you kind of slump into a period in which um, couples report a lot of marital dissatisfaction. And a lot of this has to do with that transition. You're now transitioning into marriage life. You're trying to figure out, you know, your career. You're trying to figure out living together, trying to figure out all of those things. And then couples actually report the most marital dissatisfaction between years, about two years to about eight years of marriage. And so this is where that five or seven year itch comes into play is that couples during this time period from about anniversary number two until about eight, maybe 10 years, they report a lot of marital dissatisfaction. And this is when the vast majority of um, divorces occur is during this time period. And there's a lot of um, correlational research that indicates there's a lot of life stressors that are occurring during this time period. From two years to about 10 years of marriage, your career may be changing. You may have brought children into the picture. There's all kinds of uh, factors that really um, play into your marital satisfaction. 
And then you see an increase in marital satisfaction from about the 10-year mark, from 10 years of marriage until about 15 years of marriage. And then, and so there's an increase or a rally or marital satisfaction increases during this time period. And again, this probably corresponds with the fact that your children are much more self-sufficient. You are experiencing a lot more stability in your career and and less adjustment and transition in your marriage in general. And then right around years 15, from 15 to 20, again, you'll experience another bout of marital dissatisfaction. And this marital dissatisfaction typically corresponds with things like, you know, midlife. Um, You are entering into the mid part of your life when you start to evaluate your life and what you've done and what you haven't done. It also corresponds with um, your children being teenagers, and teenagers bring a lot of marital dissatisfaction. They also bring a lot of marital conflict in how to parent teenagers. Um, the perspectives that uh, adults have or that um, intimate partners have on how to parent teenagers and what is appropriate behavior. However, the good news is, is that if you can hold on till 20 years, uh, from 20 years on, uh, couples report the most marital satisfaction. As a matter of fact, marital satisfaction will increase over 20 years to the point that it was prior during that honeymoon period. And so if you can hold on and if you um, have not decreased your self-disclosure during this time and have remained um intimately or emotionally engaged in your marriage, then you'll report a high level of marital satisfaction. However, um, marital or divorce rates have been um, increasing and a lot of it comes with a lot of changes and shifts. And so there's a lot of adjustment that occurs with um, divorce. A lot of things that people don't think about is that marriage is really disrupt more than just the marriage. They're going to disrupt things like your friends, um, the uh, friends that you may have acquired while you are married. And sometimes those friends don't want to stick around because you're not married anymore. Um, Sometimes friends feel um, like they're torn between the spouses that are getting divorced. Um, You know, you may have acquired other things uh, like you know, relationships with neighbors or, you know, having to uh, move and that adjustment and transition to moving. Um, You may have uh, entered into groups or um, organizations, religious organizations with that spouse, and then who gets to stay at that religious organization after you have separated. So there's a lot of different things that impact marriage from a social standpoint, more so than just the dissolving of the marriage. There's also effects on children, and although uh, long-term research has indicated that the impact is not as tremendous as what initially thought. Um, Initially, researchers in the 70s found a very bleak outcome for children of divorced parents, but we know that today children of divorced parents can be very successful. Again, the key to Um, the success of the children during the divorce is communication, making sure that the communication is um, 
open and clear and honest, and also ensuring that you're, that the, the divorced parents are not um, putting the children in the middle of the divorce. They're not talking bad about the other spouse um, or not slandering anybody in the meantime or in the process, um, because that will also um, lead to very negative outcomes for the children. Now, then there's also remarriage and step families. Remarriage and step families also bring another huge adjustment and transition. Um, it's very difficult um, to uh, adjust, and researchers have found that children and step families are a little bit less well adjusted than children who are in their first marriages. Um, and much more similar to children who are in a single parent home. Um, there's a lot of changes um, and shifts that occur from with step families and with remarriage. And um, so those are things that you need to be aware of uh, when entering into divorce or when looking at even potentially remarrying. So what about marriage and relationships for gay relationships or homosexual relationships? What researchers have found is that um, the vast majority prefer long-term stable relationships as well, very similar patterns to what we see in the heterosexual community. We also have found that in comparison um, with marriage statistics, um, they actually, although there's not a lot of um, not a lot of years of research on this, the um, homosexual couples experience about the same rates of divorce as heterosexual couples. Um, there is some evidence that indicates that um, gay relationships are somewhat briefer and more prone to breakups than, than heterosexual relationships. Um, however, again, the research is uh, varying a little bit because we don't have a whole lot of data on it. In regards to um, homosexual parenting, um, research has indicated that children who are reared by gay and lesbian parents are just as well adjusted as other children. Um, the reality is, is that the um, core, at the core of this is the type and the quality of relationship. It doesn't really necessarily make a difference whether or not it's a heterosexual or a homosexual, but that warm responsiveness from the parents to the children is much more important than what the sexual preference is of the parents. Looking at cohabitation, we mentioned cohabitation earlier. Um, cohabitation outside, which is uh, living together uh, with a sexually intimate partner, outside of marriage. And this has really increased tremendously over the last um, several years. And it's estimated that nearly 70% of couples live together before marriage. Um, however, again, as I mentioned before, um, being uh, in a, a cohabitating prior to marriage is not insurance for marital success. Um, uh, actually, about half of um, the people who cohabitate actually end up in divorce. And so it's not marital um, insurance. Um, and there's a lot of number, there's a number of reasons as to why people um, actually cohabitate before marriage. Um, and uh, again, a lot of them believe 
that a lot of people believe that it's, you know, trying it out before or test run before you get married. Um, and so actually, though, they have found that um, the experience of cohabiting um, can really change a person's values um, and their habits, which actually leaves them a little bit more vulnerable to divorce than individuals who don't cohabitate before marriage. The last thing that we're going to talk about in regards to marriage is intimate partner violence. And intimate partner violence is just that it's aggression towards those who are in a close relationship. Um, and so you have an aggressor and then you have somebody who is um, being abused and it can take a lot of different forms. You can be abused psychologically, you can be abused physically, and you can be abused sexually. Um, or you could probably even be a, abused a combination um, oftentimes is what occurs. Um, and so when we look at this, um, there's a couple of different um, types that we are going to talk about. Um, things like uh, date rape and partner abuse um, or battering. Um, battering, which usually encompasses physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse of an intimate partner um, is um, most common. And um, it's really kind of gained a lot of public awareness. Um, but battering is um, just that. It's um, really has a lot of physical features as well as the psychological features. And the victims uh, typically suffer from anxiety and depression, obviously feelings of hopelessness, um, stress, and really um, experience a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the victims aren't the only ones um, who are impacted by this. Obviously, children, um, if there's any children involved in the situation who may witness this, um, are also um experience a lot of stress and uh, what we would call the cycle of violence. Um, so why do individuals stay in abusive relationships? Because from the outside, and this is often commonly the question, is people ask, why do they stay in this relationship? And there's actually a lot of different reasons as to why people stay in these relationships. The main reason is out of fear. And I know people say, oh, well, I would never act that way out of fear. But research and social research indicates that um, we do change a lot of our behaviors out of fear. Um, and a great example is, you know, the the pandemic that we're uh, that we've been experiencing is really um, a lot of is driven largely by fear, our fear of getting sick or our fear of developing an illness, and which has driven us to change a lot of our behaviors. So the same is very similar to an abusive relationship. In abusive relationship, um, the individual may fear that they lack um, the ability to be financially independent. They also may fear um, that they have nowhere to go and that they may become uh, homeless. And then there's also a lot of guilt and a shame um, or guilt and shame that surrounds it. Uh, think about if, uh, and oftentimes in these patterns, you have um, an aggressor um, and then you have the victim. And the victim is oftentimes caught off guard by this behavior um, because frequently the behavior uh, starts slowly 
it may, the aggressor may exhibit some very simple um, behaviors like jealousy. And those behaviors are are very easily um, explained because, you know, the aggressor may say, oh, I, I just love you so much that I don't want anybody else to have you, or I just love you so much that I worry about you. Uh, I just can't stop worrying about you. And so it seems like it's a justifiable behavior. Uh, however, over time, then that jealousy can turn into rage. Um, it can turn into unrealistic expectations. And oftentimes then the victim starts to blame themselves for that behavior um, and blame themselves for bringing that behavior on. And so we see this cycle that occurs where the victim uh, feels at fault and burdens or carries this fear of shame with them. And so they don't want other people to know about it. And so leaving would require other people to know about it. And so it's really difficult for people to leave from these situations. Um, so they feel trapped in a lot of ways. And then they also fear that leaving may actually precipitate more violence. Um, and there are some indicators um, that this may actually occur in a percentage of cases where the uh, victim leaves and it actually um, perpetrates more violence from the other, from the aggressor. Um, now, when we're talking about domestic violence and we're talking about um, domestic partner violence, we're not just talking about um, men on women, um, although that is typically what we uh, find because we do find that 25% of women and 7% of men have been physically assaulted in an intimate partner situation. Um, however, there are incidences of um, men, it's estimated that 2.7 million men have been victims of sexual assault or rape. Um, and so there are instances in which um, men can be the victims of intimate partner um, abuse versus in, uh, women or in the cases of battering as well. So keep that in mind. Another um, another aspect or another type of intimate partner abuse is date rape. And date rape, um, again, uh, it um, doesn't occur in the context of marriage, but it does occur um, in the context of dating and relationships. And um, obviously with date rape, um, it's a type of uh, acquaintance rape where the individual um, maybe knows a little bit or um, has knows a part of what the um, the rapist knows a little bit about the rapist because they are engaging in some form of dating um, or something of that nature. The key factor is that um, the abuse is um, th this it's not consensual. Um, and so there's a couple of things to keep in mind when we look at date rape. And the first is the relationship status. Um, is it either a current relationship or a past relationship? And then past um, acts of intimacy are not um, indicators of consent. So even though um, this relationship has been going on or um, maybe the relationship ended, it doesn't necessarily mean that past acts indicate consent in the future. The other thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, ensuring that the activity is consensual. Partners should seek out um, 
you know, consent and ensure that there is consent whenever, you know, moving forward to ensure that it's not um, date rape. There are some contributing factors to date rape and not surprisingly, alcohol is one of the main factors in contributing to date rape mainly for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that drinking kind of undermines our ability to interpret um, ambiguous social clues, cues. And so um, when you're drinking, somebody may interpret a um, social cue as being an advancement when it's not or sending a message or sending a signal. Um, the other reason is that alcohol impairs our judgment and reduces our inhibitions. So it makes um, individuals more willing to engage in behavior that they may not have art that they may not have engaged in when they weren't drinking. And so drinking really clouds a person's um, assessment of their risk and their ability to um, make sound judgment. Um, and so these are all kind of things that we um, need to be aware of. And there are some steps that we can take to reduce one's likelihood of being a victim of date rape. And one of the first things is to be aware of excessive alcohol and drug use, because obviously that can undermine our um, intentions. It can undermine our responsibilities, our, our ability to make sound judgments. And then the other thing is don't leave your drink unattended or don't accept drinks from people that you don't know or trust. And again, this plays into um, roofies or rufinol, um, the date rape drug, um, and um, GHB, which is another date rape drug. And so reducing um, the uh, likelihood that you could get, you know, drugged would also um, reduce your rates of uh, likelihood of being a victim. And then when dating someone new, agree to meet in public places, always carry cash, make sure that you're not isolated or given opportunities to isolate yourself. Um, watch out for friends and vice versa. And then um, clearly and accurately communicate your expectations. And this is really kind of key, especially in dating and, you know, using the appropriate level of self-disclosure so that there's no opportunity for um, ambiguous or misconstrued intentions. So this rounds out our chapter on marriage and intimate relationships. And I encourage you to dig a little bit deeper as we kind of just glossed over a lot of the things in the chapter. But again, reflect on the fact that these intimate relationships and marriage are really built on that foundation of communication and disclosure and how much that impacts um, the success of our marriage and our intimate relationships.